Hey guys, welcome. Uh, would you welcome John Mark? We came out. Hi everybody. Hi. We came out all weird. <laughs> um, you even have yeah, water ready for me. This is like. You got water, yeah, yeah. Jimmy Fallon vibes. It's right nice, now. yeah. It's nice. You got the whole couch. You could lay down if you'd like. Um, <laughs> uh, well, thank you guys so much for, for joining. Uh, and John, thank you so much for, for making, making some time for us. Uh, Happy to be here. And really for us, we, we wanted to take this evening. Um, at, at our church, we're, we're in a series uh, right now where we are really diving into um, trying to find the theological boundaries of what does it mean to be a Christian. And uh, something that seemed real simple maybe uh, a generation ago, and it's become a lot more confusing as of late. Um, and for us, we, we've, been, we've been diving into the boundary markers of faith. And honestly, your book, Live No Lies, was, was really helpful uh, with us as we were traversing a lot of that. Um, but we keep coming up against these, uh, these things going on in culture, these things that are changing all the time. And as a church leader, it's tough. You go, okay, how do I keep up on it? What do I, what do I need to be paying attention to here, you know? Um, and we feel it. We're, we feel we're in this, this moment where things are shifting real rapidly. Um, for you, what are the things that you see that are happening in culture? You know, we're in this sort of postmodern sort of existence right now in the church. What do you see happening in culture uh, that's also starting to affect what's going on in, in church? Mm. Uh, you know, I think there's some really good news embedded in a lot of the bad news. Like, if it's really difficult, and I don't even know what landmines are down here in Phoenix. That's I'm, okay. That's I'm, all right. Just, I'm just told go. that there's lots of different political opinions down here, and yeah. it's really tricky. It's a little different than Portland. But I don't know. I'm so sorry. Yeah. Forgive me if I say something I sh should not say. Um, but uh, it's tricky, in particular for um, certain types of Americans, to distinguish between your identity as an American and your identity as a disciple of Jesus, wherever you fall in the political spectrum. This is true for a super progressive 24-year-old on TikTok or Twitter and a more conservative from middle America boomer or whatever. And, you know, we all live from a constellation of identities. So I am a dad. I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm a husband. I'm a comer. I'm a pastor, former pastor, something. I'm a writer. I'm uh, a white man. I'm, I'm a man. I'm all these different things. And how you rank those identities and what becomes a behavior and what you qualify as an identity. Like I've been learning to cook and I make a mean homemade sourdough wood fire oven pizza. Let me tell you that. <laughs> Um, but I, I, don't, I don't take Pizza Chef on as an identity, you know, what I mean? not because I'm so godly, I'm just not that good at it yet, but I'm getting there, right? So, but other things, like writer, I might take that on as an identity or whatever, and it might actually create some real shadow in my life. So, what is a behavior, what's a, a quality of your body or your pastor or your family name, and what's an identity, and then where do you rank those identities? So much of what we're seeing on both the left and the right that's so sad is you're seeing Christians that are prioritizing their political identity over their disciple to Jesus identity, or they're confusing the two. So um, in, in particular, if you love the country and you care about you know, the future of America, it can be hard to distinguish that what's bad for America might be really good for the Church of Jesus in America. 
And that might sound really weird and really counterintuitive. But we, there's, there's a good news. Most people on the right or the left, wherever you fall on that, would agree that the country's not like doing the best it's ever been doing. And there's good news in that because Babylon is being exposed as Babylon. Um, the great challenge in Christendom nations, whether it's America in the South for the last couple of decades, and America actually didn't become more Christianized until after the Second Great Awakening. People don't realize that. Rodney Stark, sociologist out of Baylor, argues that the most secular and post-Christian America ever was was at its founding, more than it is today. And the zenith of Christianity in America, he dates to 1962. So that's really interesting. Um, but uh, it can be tricky to realize that, you know, sometimes we just get confused between the goodness of a nation state, and I, I, I'm, this is a political statement, I guess, I have no problem with nation states. I know some people do. I, I think they can be quite helpful. We live in a fallen world and we need things like that. But um, it's still Babylon at a theological level. It's Babylon. Whether you're in Germany at the height of Christendom in the 17th century, or England under Wilberforce, or America, and whatever, it's, it's still a society groping its way toward the kingdom, but it's not the kingdom of God. And so there's a beautiful thing happening right now that is easy to miss in that the secular life script that seemingly has triumphed over the Christian way in America is now failing. So if you go back 20 years or even 10 years and you read some really good Christian writers, they'll talk about the Christian polemic that you know every person has a God-shaped hole and they're built for God and people can't find life apart from God. That was really hard to match that sermon polemic with the reality of middle-class people in the late 90s or millennials moving into cities and starting cool coffee shops in the early 2000s. People don't look miserable with a God-shaped hole. They look like they're having a great time doing brunch with their friends, having sex with whoever they want, getting more things, buying big screen TVs, buying cool cars, posting their life on Instagram. They don't look all that miserable. They look like they kind of look like they're happier than Christians who are like fasting and serving the poor and like dealing with sin in their body and all this stuff. And so there was this moment where it kind of felt like, yeah, like the, you, know, like you think about the change in film where um, even the change in the portrayal of sexuality is really interesting, the kind of death of the rom-com. And you have this transgressive moment in the late 90s, early 2000s, where everybody's just kind of happy and they're just kind of sleeping around and taking off their shirt and kissing and having a great time and they're falling in love and they're doing their thing. And now you see in film, or you shouldn't watch much film now, um, but there's this turn toward a, a nihilism, a darkness in sexuality, it's animalistic, it's like lack, it's hookup culture, it's a lack of romance, there's heartache, there's ambiguity, there's inability to commit. It's like there's a radical change in the arts. Yeah. And that's, I think, symbolic of this larger change happening where the, the secular life script, where people can just be happy without God, and that kind of you know late 90s, early 2000s, kind of before everything got politically crazy, like we can just kind of move on from politics and have a great life and eat hamburgers and go on vacation. And like, let's yeah. just, we don't need God, you know. I was chatting with some pastors a while ago. I keep thinking about Ted Lasso, yeah. which I'm watching season three right now, and as a Christian, I should probably not be doing that. 
It took a weird, but, it took a weird turn, for sure. My wife and I, as we were watching, we were like, it's taking a weird turn. It, it's going yeah. some weird places. But, but I think he's such a fascinating cultural phenomenon because he's basically a 90s evangelical Christian who's an atheist who sleeps around. And that's kind of what everybody wants. They want to be a happy, nice, kind, moral, incredible Christian, like person of character, happiness, and joy. But they don't want to have to have God, and they want to have sex with whoever they want to have sex with, with no strings attached or pain or trauma. That's kind of, that's, that's, he's a fictional character, just to clarify. Ted Lasso does not exist in real life. There is no atheist Jesus sleeping around. That person doesn't exist in real life. But that's kind of what America wants. We want to be this, we basically want the lifestyle, with the byproduct of Christian character, but without God and without the Christian sex ethic. Yeah, yeah. And even though we love that in Ted Lasso, overall, the way that society is starting to break down, you know, the political thing, Leslie Newbegin, British thinker from the 1970s, if you're not familiar with him, he's a really important thinker. You can read his stuff, it's a little heady, but his, some of his stuff's great, Gospel and Plural Society. He was a British missionary who left, if I, if I understand this correctly, left England before World War II, was a missionary in India for decades, and then came back, there's this legendary story where like, he and his wife put all of their belongings in a suitcase and took buses from India home to England. So he's just like hardcore Jesus kind of person. Came back after decades in India, and I think it was in the, I wanna say it's the early 70s, I'd have to go Google that to remember, that he came back to England, and he had this fresh pair of eyes for Western culture. And he basically said, the people in England are just as lost as the people in a Hindu culture. But in England, everybody kind of thinks it's a Christian nation still. And the church operates totally different in England under Christendom assumptions than it does in India, where it's holistic and it's more evangelistic and they're doing social justice and hardcore community and church planting. And, and so he was one of the founders of what you would call missional thinking and like new models of evangelism. But he predicted that as the West secularized, religion would not go away. Instead, it would migrate over to politics. And he warned of what he called the rise of the political religions, that politics will come to take the place of faith in a secular society. We are now living through that prediction on both the left and the right, whether it's the way people put identity in politics. People never used to do that like this. The way they put utopian hopes and dreams, the way it's just like, if we can just get the right president, then all of the problems of society will go away. It's like, what history books are you reading? And um, so that illusion, and I'll shut up, is is exposing itself as a lie. And that's really sad, and it's really hard, because so many people have bought into that illusion and built their lives on that illusion, and now the foundation is crumbling across our nation, but there's great news for us as followers of Jesus on multiple levels. One, there are gonna be more and more people that are more and more open to the life of Jesus as the secular narrative fails them. Two, the sexual revolution is going to change in our lifetime, I bet you anything, where, um, where people are gonna to begin to more and more have to face the reality of this is doing more damage than good. And the Christian sex ethic, I would sometime, whether it's in our lifetime or my children or grandchildren, is going to start to look beautiful again yeah. to the white. That's what happened in the Roman Empire, and I think it'll have. I think it will. History repeats itself sometimes. I think that will happen again. And three, the only types of Christians 
and churches that will survive in this level of secularism are really robust, disciple-to-Jesus, healthy ones. And there's a sadness there coming from somewhere where, you know, maybe 1% to 2% most of the population is a Christian. There's a sadness because the wider society that I'm raising my kids in is so godless and it's so immoral and it feels like Book of Eli sometimes in Portland. Um, there's a sadness. I wish my kids were growing up somewhere where I didn't have to like re-educate them on the basics of the body and of things like this. Um, but there's a beauty there in that the only churches that are thriving are like the really serious following Jesus churches. And um, there's something really beautiful about that. Yeah, so I love that. It's not all bad news, not at all. Yeah, and I think that's the, the, the trick of the times that we're in, you know? Like, I've noticed, and you were talking about in there, the uh, kind of overly optimistic sort of preaching style of yeah. uh, evangelical Christian and, uh, and Christian pastors. And I've seen, especially as of late, there's strains of the church that are just basically ignoring what's going on in culture and going, we're fine. It's going to be fine. Don't worry yeah. about it. Like, we just need to focus on Jesus. And what I've experienced a little bit is when you call out the thing that everybody's feeling, it actually makes them feel better than feel yes. worse, you know? They go, oh, finally, somebody is noticing that. But how do you, tra how do you traverse that? Like, how do you traverse the paying attention to culture but not letting it pull you down into the depths of despair, which it could easily do in this season. Yeah, definitely just read the news as little as possible. That's my <laughs> current philosophy right now. I'm, I have just a couple of like digital weak spots, and one is I can just get obsessive about reading op-eds and the news, and I tell you, nothing just makes me anxious, angry, and sad like the New York Times. <laughs> it's not healthy, yeah. Um, you know, I think the people that wanna just put blinders on and shut it out. First off, I just want to affirm, part of that is a healthy impulse. So like in particular, the 24-7 news cycle is a very recent phenomenon. And you are not a bad person or a bad American if you read the news once a week as opposed to once an hour, you know? Yeah. And if you read it through like proper journalism, not through clickbaity Twitter or Facebook, you know? So I do think there is a right impulse there to um, keep your view of the world in its proper place and not let it overwhelm your life because, you know, and this is a, not a Christian problem, this is just a human problem. Um, part of the massive problem we're facing in society is the way that journalism, which has always uh, profited most off of the negative, not the positive, which is why in the news is pretty much all the bad things that happened that day. It's not the billions of good things that happen. What we call news is mostly what went wrong and not what went right, you know? And then, but that's just been so exacerbated by the digital age, social media, the way social media has, you know, changed the journalism industry to make it, you have to be clickbaity and you have to basically use fear and anger to get people to read your article. And, and there are obviously there's brilliant journalists out there. I'm not trying to disparage that field. It's just, a, it's like a systemic problem in an industry that has a huge effect on our culture. And so, you know, this were all the new atheists, and, they're, and they're, they're half right and half wrong, but all the new atheists point out, like, everybody thinks the world's falling apart, but it's better than ever by justice, by poverty, by, you know, it's just hard to believe that when you're actually living through it because we're so, such a negative bias through the news and social media. So I think there's a right, healthy, mature, like, hey, I'm, gonna, I'm not gonna let this consume my mind. 
But what you have to do is, is the Jesus thing, wherein Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount does a compare and contrast. So it's, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And so it's, that's like how I try to preach. You know, like the first part of most of my sermons is you have heard it said. And then we get into, but I say to you. No, Jesus says to you, not me. Um, well, me too, but listen to him. Yes, a little bit of a mix, unfortunately. Um, but that, that kind of delineating, so, so the most dangerous lies are the ones we assume to be true. The most dangerous narratives are the ones that we don't even think about. We just live from. And they're so deeply in us that we often don't even realize they're there at all. It's, you know, the, the quintessential story, proverb, you know, the two fish swimming along and they pass an older, the two younger fish pass the older fish and say, and then he says, you know, good morning, boys, how's the water? And they, and they swim on and they say, what the heck is water? You know, it's, it's that stuff that we're just so deep in, we don't really even think about it. That's the stuff that's the most dangerous. Um, so it might be narratives like more money equals more happiness, or nobody has the right to tell me what I should do with my life, or I, happiness relies upon me, you know, fulfilling my sexual desires, or whatever. These are the narratives, the ones that we don't even think about, are the ones that, you know, if they're not true, can be most damaging to us. So um, I think some of that work of what ancient Christians would call discernment and the discernment of spirits and discerning what ideas and narratives and worldviews and practices and ways of being in relationship are of the world or even of the evil one and and what's of Jesus, what's the way of Jesus. You have heard it said, but I say to you, that work of discernment is, whether you're a preacher or just a disciple of Jesus, I think is really, really important. You know, like one of the most important questions we can sit with as disciples of Jesus is what ideas, lies, narratives have I just bought into? How, how have I been brainwashed um, by, how has my church been brainwashed? How, in what ways have I, have I just bought into things? Yeah that are not actually Jesus' vision of life, yeah. you know? Yeah, and I think one of the, one of the stories we, we've been talking about as a community here is uh, when Jesus said, you can see the clouds and you tell what's going on in the weather, you could see all these things, yeah, but yet you do not story. discern the times that you live yes. in, you know? And there is this sort of, I think there is an importance in understanding the times that we live in, not to give them too much sway in our life, but to understand that. Yeah. And one of the authors, um, and I know she was on your podcast, uh, but Nancy Piercy oh. uh, is amazing. Her and if book. you haven't read Nancy Piercy, Love Thy Body. Love Thy Body. Uh, every book it. that, every book that she's it. written is great. Actually, um, I think that it's the something boundaries of truth or something like that is free total, on total truth total truth that's what it is it's free on audible right now so Woo. just a little tip for you if you would like to listen that's to your it. drive home right there. yes people. exactly uh, but she gives this beautiful framework just like you were talking about in terms of discerning the lies of our time which yeah. you wrote a whole book about um but she she provides this framework like the false gospel sort of framework of this seeing the things that we see around us in culture and going, is this, is there a false sort of creation and redemption story that I'm believing that oftentimes is expressed in politics right now or expressed in uh, materialism or whatever thing that you're chasing? How for you 
have you discerned that? Like, how has that been something for you in your life in understanding the boundary conditions of your faith and going, where am I believing something that's false? Hmm. Well, I mean, on the positive side, this is so not like impressive or like some new answer, but just reading the Bible is quite helpful. Um, so just uh, the daily reading of Scripture, how much of it just goes right over my head? How, you know, how often do we read a passage and it just doesn't compute, you know, and um, we miss it? Or, or we avoid it, or we ignore it, or we like that. Hopefully, it doesn't mean what it sounds like it means, because that would require me to give my money away, or whatever, you know. Um, but the the daily reading of Scripture is the the constant attempt at the renewal of the mind, at counterformation of your mind, at filling. There's two strategies. One is identifying lies and trying to set them aside. The other is filling your mind with truth. And you know the two most historic ways you do that are you meditate on scripture and you con contemplate God in prayer. Yeah. And you fill your mind with the vision of who God is and truth and the, the Christian story, the Christian narrative. So just at the most basic, you just read your Bible every day yeah. and or very often and just live in the text, immerse your mind in the text, listen to every Bible Project podcast that ever comes out mm -hmm. and all of that. And then, you know, oh my gosh, how do you identify on the other side? Um, you know, this is where I think uh, books and preachers and teachers are very helpful, you know. In particular, there are certain ones that just have a charism for that. So read anything by Mark Sayers. Um, James K. Smith is quite helpful. Um, Tim Keller is just like world class, such a gift some of these thinkers that have worked really hard, Tish Harrison Warren on the female side more recently, um, have worked really hard to help us kind of identify the narratives underneath the claims of a self-actualization culture. Um, and even Mark Sayers has done this whole rat, I couldn't even quote it, I'm quite tired tonight, but his articulation of the secular self-actualization gospel. And he goes through and goes, you know, atonement, salvation, heaven, community, and he defines all of them, not from the Christian perspective, but from the like Peloton, TikTok, Instagram, <laughs> yeah. millennial Gen Z perspective, and it's amazing. I mean, it's just so good. So people that have a charism for that, you know, Live No Lies was kind of my like wannabe attempt at that, you know, I, I'm pale in comparison. I thought it was excellent. I thought it was excellent. Well, thank yes. you. You should get out more, but thank you. Um, that was a compliment. I didn't mean to insult you, but uh, thank you. Um, but yeah, I get out. I get out. <laughs> so I think the role of preachers and teachers, books, but then also the role of community. So, um, and I don't just mean like knowing other Christians and going to potlucks, but um, do you still have potlucks down here? We, we, we don't have them anymore either. We might. I don't know. I shook, I shook I my head know. real quick. We might. I don't know. Um, we have taco nights, though. That's much, which we're moving in the right direction as the Church of Jesus. Uh, but... The role of community can be incredibly helpful because when you really deeply known and you are and you share your heart openly and vulnerably with people who know you, they can help you identify. Like, we'll have this. I mean, we've just had you know, it's hard and it's messy, but we've been able to live in community for quite a while now. And it, regularly, I'll hear, I'll, I will hear somebody say, "Well, like you know that what you just said is is a lie, right? You know that's not true." And, you know, in the context of love and community and because, um, you know, when you're just talking and you get 
your guard down with people and you become safe with people because you do life together around a table, the real you starts to come out and the facades start to come down, almost just unintentionally, and you'll let slip. I mean, Jesus has that line, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So once all of our filters get off of us, when we're tired or we're angry or we're hurt, like kind of whatever is down there will just kind of come up. And when that comes up, um, whether it's in a therapist's office or in prayer or in close Christian community, sometimes you'll hear yourself say something and you actually believe it, but it's not true. Mm. And, uh, and sometimes loving community can help, you know, gently say, just, I just want to speak truth over you. Yeah. That's not true. Yeah. And this is what's true of you. Yeah. And, you know, so I think that's, that's really important, but I think it is important work, you know, um, if I have a secret evil plan for my writing. I don't know if anybody's read anything I've written, that's great if you haven't, but um, I'm about to write this long series that's gonna take me 10 or 20 years on formation and discipleship, and a whole bunch of books coming. The first one's out in January. But before I wrote this series, I realized there were two things just at a pastoral level that were keeping me and keeping people in our church from ever going on the spiritual journey, from ever going on a serious life of discipleship pathway. The first was hurry, like most people were just flat out too busy. They did not have time to really apprentice under Jesus in such a way that they are transformed over time. So we have to take busyness head on because most people love Jesus, great theology, orthodox, they know all the, they're just too busy to have much of a spiritual life at all. And then secondly, I realized, even if people slow down, I'm, you know, we've started this organization called Practicing the Way, and it's very much on the, like, the practical, like, outworking of discipleship, like, how do you go do this? That's only helpful for people that have caught an extraordinary vision of how beautiful Jesus is and want to give everything to apprenticing under him and want to believe his vision of human flourishing is the best and put their trust, believe in him, put their trust for their whole life in him, then I'd love to come in and help them figure out how to do that in the iPhone age and all that stuff. Mm. But if they still believe the false gospels of the world, they still believe the other narratives, the other gospels, the other soteriologies, the other salvations, they're never going to believe Jesus, and then they're never going to want to sacrifice and do what's required to live into Jesus' vision. So I, ha I wrote those two books to back up and say, all right, we've got to deal with hurry, and we've got to deal with these false narratives, these false gospels, these lies in like very blunt language that are holding people back from ever going on a journey of discipleship. That's good. That's good. I want to switch gears just a little bit. The horizon of the church. Okay. Looking, at the, looking at the future of the church, and you could tell there's a, a pretty big GCU contingent that comes to Living Streams. I don't know if there's any GCU students in here. Okay. Um, and uh, and we, we look at the, la <laughs> looking at the landscape uh, of the church, and a lot of people just on the surface are going, oh man, next generation, lost, they're just lost on TikTok, you know. I have experienced they're a lot of the opposite. They're never on TikTok. What, <laughs> they're why never would on TikTok, anyone yeah. think that? Yeah, yeah. Um, I've experienced the opposite. And what's funny is I've just seen a lot of young people, um, and I just saw something brand new, a brand new study out today uh, that said uh, 18 to 25 year olds, it used to be a quarter of them that went to church, uh, considered themselves believers in God. It's now one third. So it's jumped up wow. in the last year. 
This is not of grown up in the church. This is in, is an American study? It's an American study, yeah. So it's jumped up a a significant amount. Can you send that to me? I can send it to you. Yes, absolutely. That'll preach. So, yeah. So I was reading the other day and I came across this article in my research. (laughs) Da, da, da. But what's so funny is, you know, like as, as I talk to college students that come up and there is this resounding theme that keeps coming up and they say, you know, thank you so much for just telling the truth. Thank you for being clear. And, uh, and we've been using this phrase just in the last couple of months, clarity is kindness. Yeah. We're trying to be kind with our clarity. Like a Brene um, Brown thing? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Same, yes. same, same thing. Brene. Yes, yeah. Uh, what do you see coming? What, I mean, obviously we have a new generation that I think in a lot of ways doesn't have the same sort of hardwired, this is what church needs to look like. Yeah. What do you see coming in the horizon of the church in the next generation? Yep. Um, no, I love it. I think you're right. It's counterintuitive, but things can get worse and better at the same time. So you can have a generation walking away from God and a generation getting more serious about discipleship at the same time. So you can have, you know, what's, what's, what's burning up in America is that middle ground of cultural Christianity. And it's becoming more you're in or you're out. You're on the narrow way or the broad way. And it's Christendom that has this wide, ambiguous middle ground, you know. Um, post-Christian culture doesn't have that. You're, you're in or you're out. You know, I don't mean that in like a, you're going to hell or you're going, no, I don't mean that in some kind of fundamentalist way. I mean that more in a social discipleship kind of way. So I think you're right. I think there's this beautiful resurgence of discipleship and there's droves of people abandoning the faith, abandoning Christian orthodoxy, walking away from the church. Both things are happening at the same time. And the middle is, is burning up. And it's sad, but it's not all bad. Mm-hmm. And um, one really cool thing about Gen Z that's different to my generation is because less of them grew up in church, um, many of them have less emotional wounding from the church. Yeah. Their emotional wounding comes from TikTok. <laughs> and it comes from pornography. Yeah. And it comes from starting to sleep with their boyfriend and girlfriend at 12 or 13 years old. And it comes from their parents who followed the millennial life script of do whatever you want and divorced and left them heartbroken and with attachment issues and fear of other people. And it comes with, I mean, it comes with all that, that's their wounding, not like, you know, my pastor was mean or whatever, you know? I'm not not downplaying that, that's a serious thing. And so um, there's a gift there, you know, the sadness of, Christendom. The beauty of Christendom is it has a preservative effect upon the culture. And the sadness of Christendom is it's just rife with compromise and complicity. And when church leadership becomes a socially desirable position, which it's now, that's disappearing, but it used to be, then it, it, it presents corruption, it puts corruption in, you know? And then it's just like a cancer in the church and people get hurt and people get wounded. You know, for the first four centuries of the church, the higher up you were in church leadership just meant you were the first ones to get killed. <laughs> yeah. So it's really sad, that's not a good thing. Yeah. But it had a remarkably purifying effect upon pastors. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you did not, not an industry to get go into, into the ministry yeah. because it was like a way to grow your Instagram platform. Yeah. You know, like you just because the persecution wasn't steady, it came in waves. 
And so there, you know, you'd have 20 years where it'd just be kind of cultural hostility, but you were safe. And then the emperor would impl implement a new decree, and it was spotty. It wasn't always the whole empire. It'd be like regions, and they'd go through and just start. They, they didn't normally slaughter Christians in mass. Normally, most of the stories we have is they would pick out leaders, pastors, bishops, and wealthier, kind of more as a class society, people of means, and they would arrest them, tell them deny their faith or we'll kill you, and if they didn't deny their faith, they'd kill them in front of everybody. And that was their attempt to try to stamp out the way of Jesus, and it had the opposite effect. It just was like gasoline on the fire. And that famous early church line, church father line, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. So that has a remarkably purifying effect upon like a young person thinking about becoming a pastor. Um, will I die first? Um, so in a Christendom model, like you compare that to, you know, the corruption that Luther and others were dealing with or the Anglican church dealt with until not that long ago where you'd buy pulpits. Like if you had the money because the pulpit came with like a set of businesses and a way to income. And so wealthy people would buy the pulpit and they would put their preacher in and they would tell them what they can and they cannot preach. And the preacher then would get a really nice house. I mean, it's like a level of corruption. And this is not like, this is like England like 150 years ago. It's not that long ago, you know? And you're like, it just introduces in the Christendom model those beautiful things. And it introduces this incredible level of compromise and complicity with Babylon. Because all of a sudden Babylon doesn't look like Babylon anymore. It looks like our Christian nation. So that's disappearing, and that is not all bad. And so there's a beauty now where young Christians have, there's still a lot of wounding from unhealthy churches. And, and some of that is just, you, you will never get away from that. As long as there are people in churches, people will get hurt in churches. And that's actually part of the point, to bring us to grace, to bring us, to teach us to forgive. It's why Jesus put forgiveness the absolute center and said like some of his strongest language um, most, quote, legalistic language was around forgiveness. If you do not forgive, neither will you be forgiven. Mm. He just put it central. You know, I've been meditating a lot on Colossians 3. Um, Therefore, you know, as God's children, holy and dearly loved, um, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, patience, and gentle, gentleness and patience. Bear with one another and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as you have been forgiven. I mean, just that emphasis in the New Testament on forgiveness is only required if you're living in close community and you're getting hurt a lot. Yes. Otherwise, there would be no emphasis in the New Testament on forgiveness. Yeah. And, um, and so some of it is built into church, and it it's hurts and it's painful, and it's actually part of how God forms us into people of Christ-like love, because mm -hmm. we go through what Christ went through, and it forms us if we let it into bitter, angry people or into loving, compassionate, gentle people. Yeah. Um, so I do think there's a, I'm ranting, but I think there's, things are getting worse and things are getting better yeah, that's at good. the same time. Well, I think, Again, looking at the horizon of the church, it's interesting. And, and in so many ways, it, it, like as somebody's worked in the church for a long time, and yeah. you could probably attest to this, uh, I feel like even in recent years, I'm waking up to the, we've, we've wired our church around the event. We've wired it around come and be entertained. And uh, it fosters a, a, a culture where people come and they go, I like to come to this church because they sing the songs I like and they preach the way that I like. Uh, and then if it changes, they go, up. Oh, I'm going to drop this and I'm going to move on to the next thing. And, and as much as we've complained about that as church leaders, 
a lot of ways we were so complicit in it. You know, we were so complicit in creating that. You know, uh, I think looking at the horizon of the church, it's interesting. Uh, I, at a generation that doesn't have maybe quite as much baggage and isn't enamored with a high number of Instagram followers like maybe our generation was more enamored with, you know. Um, how do you think structurally that starts to affect the church? And, and nobody can know for certain. But what do you start to see on the horizon of, like, church structure? How do we lean into creating more of that, hey, iron sharpens iron, you're actually in community? Mm. Yeah, um, I mean, I, first off, the fact that you would say that as a pastor of a large church just speaks so well to you and to the leadership here and the heart of this church. I mean, I just want to applaud that. And it's so beautiful. And thank you for your heart. And thank you for you guys for being up for that kind of a church, you know. And you're right, that, that model of consumer-based church is not the future. It only works in Christendom. It only works with a cultural pressure to be in church. And if there's a cultural pressure, and there still is. Maybe, I don't know Phoenix well enough to know. I know it's very different than where I live. So maybe there still is here. There are still, like in Dallas, there are places like that where there is still cultural pressure to go to church on Sunday. Um, we're, we're probably doing, in the middle. We're, we're not Portland, in the but we're not Texas. Yeah, I had no, this weird out-of-body... Well, I'm going to say that question. <laughs> anyway, yes. So in, in cultural settings where there is cultural pressure to go to church then may the best church win, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yep. And the church that is the most, like, going to be the most entertaining to more nominal Christians or um, is going to likely do really, really well. It doesn't mean that large churches are all consumer at all. Um, sometimes they're large for really good reasons. Uh, but that doesn't make sense. Most people, whether you're in Dallas or Phoenix or L.A., if they're 21, they're not feeling a cultural pressure other it's a than shrinking maybe from their mom. Yeah, it's a shrinking that is island a shrinking sure, island, yeah. you know? of feeling a call, like, oh, I really, like, I'm a bad person if I don't go to church this morning, you know? I mean, I don't know anybody that, that age that thinks that way. I can't get Christians to feel bad for not going to church. Um, so I want them to. They should. Uh, <laughs> um, so, so I think you're right about that. And I, I don't have a model of church that I think is like, this is the right model, or a size of church. I think... Every model and every size of church has strengths and weaknesses to it, pros and cons. And I think what's really important, whether you're the pastor, especially if you're the pastor or you're a parishioner, as we used to say, is to just know what the weaknesses are and not be in denial about them and just do what you can to shore them up, yeah. you know? Um, the, the strength of larger churches is often, you know, preaching and teaching, which is such a powerful, I mean, experience. When you hear good preaching, yeah. oh, gosh, it's transformative effect on the soul. Yeah. There's a lot of bad preaching. <laughs> Some churches are small because the church preaching is not good. Yeah. And, um, and so, but small churches can do things that large churches can never do in a million years community, life together, being known at a greater level, being more present in a neighborhood, being less consumeristic in how they're driven. So I don't think one is better than the other. I just think they both have strengths and weaknesses. And so you need to know what your strengths are, play to them, but know what your weaknesses are and do what you can to shore that up. Um, I'm way more interested in the culture of a church than in the model of a church. So I know some giant mega churches that are large because they've like fully just adopted radical individualistic consumerism and it's just shameless. Yeah. And I know other churches that are large because they're like, 
radically calling people up to mission, discipleship, a larger, and they're like so healthy. I know some small churches that are like super healthy and life together and thick webbing of community. I know other small churches that are small because they are dysfunctional and the leadership is passive and they've been through multiple church splits and it's gossipy and infighting and you don't romanticize just because there are 120 people, they're awesome, no. And, um, but my conviction around the future of the church, meaning like a healthy, it is so not sexy. I, I don't think it's pastors getting on TikTok and cooler websites and like sermons in VR headsets or whatever, you know, chat GDP pastors or whatever, like spiritual direction from that chat GPT open AI. Sneaking up on us it's sneaking up on us, man. We are going to be out of a job. So I was always like, they'll never be able to like put me out of a job as a writer and preacher. And then I see some of these things and I'm like, Holy, what else am I going to do for a living? I need to figure it out. I have about three years to it's, figure it it's out. It's wild. Yeah, it's wild. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, I just don't think that's the future. I think the future is ancient. And um, I think it's, it's not, I'm not saying it's bad to like, you know, adopt newer trends culturally or whatever, but sometimes it is, sometimes it's not. But I think the future is ancient. And so I think it's a return to some of the things that are missing from church in recent American history. Specifically, I think it's a return to the, the table-based community. So whether you have a church of a couple thousand on a Sunday that breaks into hundreds of table communities or a church of, you know, we're doing a gap year right now. Our church is about 120 people. It's all built around Dunbar's principal sociologist that said the optimal number for human organizations is around 150 people. So they don't, they don't let it get bigger than that. And then they plant churches. It's all table-based, um, eat a meal together on Sundays. Really, really cool. And it has, again, it has a whole list of weaknesses, but it has a whole different set of strengths than Bridgetown, where we have been for 20 years, has. And probably a different set of strengths than a church like Living Streams would have. And um, so whatever the size is, I think the future is people eating meals together in homes or smaller settings where they know and they are known. I think it's people living by a rule of life of just serious discipleship together. I think it's re-embracing, if you wanna call it this, you could just call it contemplative spirituality, meaning just practices that slow us down and center us in the meditation on God and put us into deep places of quiet prayer. Um, I just, it's simple stuff, ancient stuff, non, you know, monetizable stuff. And I think the future is ancient. And that's why I have so much hope because some of the moments when, when culture was at its worst was moments when the church was at its healthiest. And I don't really want that. I would love like Christendom and a healthy church. And, um, but I, I think a healthier church is more important. That's good, that's good. Uh, we're gonna take a little bit of time to do uh, uh, some Q&R. Uh, which is Portland talk for a Q&A, <laughs> question and response time. Uh, so if you have a question uh, for John Mark, just go ahead and raise your hand. Uh, we have somebody, oh, we've got a question already right here. And then we've got, oh, Stuart, we've got a hand raised right here. That's so cool you guys would come out tonight. Yes, I'm yeah, happy. thank you guys. We told you very last minute too, so we appreciate all you guys uh, coming. <clears throat> I read your book, Live No Lies, about five times. Okay. Thank you for that. It's that bad, huh? I just couldn't. <laughs> it's that good. Oh, thank you, uh, sir. But you wrote it just before the pandemic. 
uh, if you were to write it again, mm. what would you say differently, if anything? Because you've had three years... Well, I would not have written that book if I had known how crazy the world was going to go. That's an interesting question. Honestly, um, there's there's just one significant change I would make. um, The original draft of that book was 20,000 words longer, and it was much feistier. And I have a good editor, and it ended up much shorter. And I um, had a ton of content in it around postmodern gender theory and transgenderism as the kind of penultimate example of where culture has gone and where it's going and the ramifications of it. And I pulled it all out because it's just everybody was screaming at each other at the time. And you know, people have a threshold of how many controversial ideas they can hear from a pastor. And, um, and, and, and I was just barely in, I was in survival mode just personally. And I'm like, man, it's just, I'm already putting a giant target on my head. I don't think I can do that too. And I pulled it at the end and I regret that. I still, um, Carl Truman's book came out after mine or if you've not read, okay, so it is, um, I think the most important Christian book written in a decade. There's two of them. Um, you can pick your adventure here. So the, the main one is called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by Carl Truman, his professor. Um, and then it's about 400 pages. Uh, I, I mean, it's amazing, but it's, you know, thick. It's not super accessible. And so um, basically a bunch of people like me read it and said every Christian in America needs to read this book, but it's kind of too hard for most people to read. Um, can you do an easier version? So then he just recently came out with like a 160-page paperback. It's the same base called Strange New World. It's the same basic thing, but just shorter and a little bit more accessible. Um, and I read it with my, with my, with our kinship group and my kids all read it who are, you know, 13, 14, 17, um, and they, they, they could read it. So, uh, his, his books are amazing and he basically just does 500 years of, not five, 400 years of Western thought, goes back, kind of mostly starts with Darwin and then just traces the development of Western thought basically from Darwin through Nietzsche, through to Rousseau, through Judith Butler, and ends at postmodern gender theory and basically argues, you know, to maybe somebody your age, to my grandparents. My grandpa had heard me say 20 years ago, I'm a woman stuck in a man's body. That would have, that sentence would have not made sense to him. And now, if you're under a certain age, that's just the assumption of a true statement about the world. And he just argues about that shift was, was hundreds of years coming, and it's actually a perfectly rational development of thought of how people got to that idea. And it comes with a whole set of philosophical assumptions that you know people are animals, there's no God, there's no right and wrong, truth is a form of suppression. That comes with all of these assumptions that you know sexual fulfillment is essential, that identity is freely chosen. It comes with all of these philosophical assumptions that um, are built in. And um, anyway, so there's just lots of interesting things there, but it's very hard to talk about well. So I pulled it, and I wish I had, I wish I'd left it in. Yeah. Another question? Oh, we got one right here. Uh, um, yeah, they're both by Carl Truman, uh, C-A-R-L, uh, Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Strange New World. You can tell them they have kind of sim- same designed covers, basically. 
Another question. They also yes. have book clubs. I'm just saying your church could do book clubs yeah. on his books. Yes. It yeah, that would be, be awesome. Yeah. Vote, well, yes. we've been we've been plugging Nancy Piercy pretty strong. Oh, her last, stuff's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, yep. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, essential. Reading. And similar kind of vibe to her. Yes. You know. Um, yeah. yeah. Kind of the the yeah. Here we got another one right up, up here. Hi, uh, so you kind of talk a lot about like, oh, TikTok pastors and stuff like that. And I feel like our generation is used to a lot of different terminology. And he talks about TikTok pastors. <laughs> it was all, it was all me, yeah. Uh, a term I've heard thrown, a lot, uh, thrown around a lot, and I'd love to hear your perspective on it, is this idea of legalism. And what's the difference between someone who is actually engaging in legalism and missing like the spirit and the truth behind what we're commanded to do uh, versus what is being like lovingly held accountable and holding up the Christian ethics? Yeah. Um, so, so the I want to hear. Make sure I hear the question correctly. Are you asking me for my understanding of what the word legalism is? Differentiate, differentiate someone who is just throwing out the term legalism, even if that's not necessarily true, versus what is like genuinely just being like upheld to what Christians are supposed to believe and supposed to act. I feel like yes. a lot of people use legalism. What's the difference between legalism and holiness? Yes. Yeah, a lot of people are like, oh, I'm just not into legalism. We have freedom in Christ. And what they mean is they want to sin without guilt. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, that's not freedom in Christ. That's sin. That's slavery. Yeah. That's not freedom. Um, read the New Testament. Um, <laughs> so... Yeah, I mean, again, I may not be helpful, and again, I don't know the landmines in Phoenix, and forgive me, and I know that there's a, a broad cross-direction of political opinions and stuff, but I, I have spent my whole life on the west coast of America, in, in the Bay Area, in Portland, Oregon, and now we're moving to L.A. So my whole experience has been... Just now, moving to L.A. Yes, yes, yes. I just got a call right before we bought a house uh, an hour, uh, 30 minutes ago. Yeah. Um, yes, we're real excited. Uh, so my whole life has been with, you know, liberalism to legalism. My whole life's been over here, you know. I love legalistic Christians. I always want more of them as a pastor because they run churches. They give, they tithe, they show up. They feel guilty if they don't show up. You know, pastors preach against Pharisees, and I'm like, give me 20 Pharisees. I'll run a, I'll run a church movement, you know. Um, no. So I, you know, so I'm, most of my pastoral life is attending to liberalism, not to legalism. But... Um, I do know a lot of, in particular, people who grew up in evangelicalism who use legalism as an excuse to avoid holiness, and other people that have been genuinely hurt, and then other people, in particular, boomers, who have genuinely been freed from a painful experience in legalism and found real life in Christ, and so they have an allergic reaction toward it, for, for not all bad reasons. So I would define legalism mostly as attempting to hold yourself to a higher standard than Jesus. So that's what Jesus was dealing with. The Pharisees' express purpose was they were trying to get all of Israel to obey an interpretation of the priestly code. So in the Torah, there's one set of um, commands for the common person and another set of commands for the priests and the Levites. 
And that became quite complicated after they lost their autonomy because they couldn't obey the Torah in the same way. And so the Pharisees were trying to get everybody to live like a priest. And so they had to use like goofy interpretation of like, you know, your home family meal table is the altar and your your home is like a mini holy of holies. Some cool ideas. But then they actually like expected people who had families and businesses and jobs to live like priests. Does that make sense? So um, a good example of that, and this may be too, way too close to home, but I grew up in like a hardcore teetotaler culture where it was considered sinful to drink wine. The, the problem is like communion. <laughs> so there's a little bit of a problem there, you know, and wine being like a picture of the Holy Spirit and of life in God. And I absolutely agree with all the dangers of alcoholism and all this stuff, 100%. So once you say that it's a sin to drink when Jesus literally left wine to remember him by and Jesus' was, first miracle was to turn water into wine. And, and so at that point, you're holding yourself to a higher standard than Jesus. And you might have good reason. You might have been raised by an alcoholic father. You might have seen a church implode because of you know, abuse of alcohol and you know, like whatever. But those are emotional wounding reasons. They're not healthy reasons. And so that's where you're holding yourself to a higher standard. Or another example could be um, making black and white what is gray in scripture. And so, you know, um, there are gray areas. Uh, let's, you know, a film I think is a little bit less so, but let's take literature, you know, like what, what is okay, you know, to put into, what's Harry Potter? Let's take that, you know. Personally, I stopped reading Harry Potter. I, I, I thought there was, I was uncomfortable with it. But other people think it's the greatest Christian book written in decades, and it is Christological. Other people think it's satanic, okay? It's a little ambiguous and unclear, you know? And um, so once, if you wanna draw a hard line, it's wrong or it's right, that's, I think that's legalism. That's something that's a little gray and it's a little ambiguous. Materialism would be a better example. Um, because wealth is relative, Jesus has such clear teachings on, on wealth but he's not living in a world, post-industrial world, where you can get t-shirts made off the rack from the other side of the world. He's, he's not living in a world like that. Even if you were super wealthy, you'd have like a couple of tunics. So, um, so he's not clearly addressed, like how many pairs of shoes, preachers and sneakers, how many pairs of shoes is it appropriate? I literally had this conversation with my son. Yes, he's got his first job. He's not a minimalist, he's a maximalist. And, <laughs> Um, he's yet to discover the joy of simplicity, and great kid, into fashion, and he's just getting his first paychecks, and he came to my, into my office. At first, I thought it was cool that he came into my office. He's like, Dad, which, which shoe should I buy? And it was these, like, $400 Nikes. I'm super into labor ethics. I'm from where Nikes from. I don't wear Nikes for, for justice reasons that I have convictions around. And he wanted to spend, he makes like minimum wage. Now it's California minimum wage, which is like $1,000 an hour. But, um, <laughs> but, uh, but he, and he wants to buy these, and I'm just like biting my tongue, biting my, I'm like, no son, you are 17. You should not spend $400 on unethically made shoes that are gonna go out of style in three days. Like you should not, but I didn't say that. I was like, ah, I, I wouldn't buy that because I you know some of my commissions around that. But I wanna, you know, I love, blah, 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 blah. 
So how many pair? He doesn't need a new pair of shoes. Like, Dad, I really need these. I'm like, what about the ones I bought you used? Because I won't buy them new, but I bought them for you used for Christmas. It's like, oh, yeah, you know, they're kind of beat up. I'm like, no, they're not. They're awesome. <laughs> so how many pairs of shoes is too many pairs of shoes for a follower of Jesus? I don't know. I have a 14-year-old that just did this exact same thing, got himself some Yeezys, and I was like, we are what? Fan- what are we yes, doing wrong? I don't know. I don't know. I'm like, are you sure? Are you sure that's what you want to spend your money on? I feel like a lot of lawns for those easies. Anything I do wrong, like Toby's in the room. I'm sorry, buddy. (laughs) Anything I do wrong, my kids do naturally without me telling them. Yes. But anything I do right, they said to be like, nah. Yeah. (laughs) It's not fair. Teenagers. 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 No, my kids are awesome. Yeah. But I think if I were to come up with a Christian should not have more than X pair of shoes, that would be legalism. It would be taking a gray area. There's a general principle of, you know, probably live below your means, live generously, be content with what you have, don't do injustice through your shopping. Does that mean two pairs of shoes? Does it mean ten pairs of shoes? What about running shoes? Do they count? You know, I think that's where you get into legalism. And um, so I do think, back to your question, we're ranting now, sorry, I'm quite tired. Um, The call to holiness has stereotypically been lost by our generation. And we need to recapture the beauty of a holy life and calling people to obedience to Jesus and calling sin, sin. You can do it nicely. You can do it graciously. You can do it thoughtfully and with nuance. But that is not something to be ashamed of. And you will get accused of being a legalist. Um, And you just have to know that you're going to stand before God one day. And, um, and he knows what's legalism and what's a genuine desire for holiness, what's ungodly, arrogant zeal, and what's genuine love for a neighbor. And none of us have a pure heart. And so all of us just at the end of the day have to fall in bed and say, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, you know? That's good, that's good. Maybe one more question? Sure. One more question, yep, here. So in a society where we're moving toward the absence of absolute truth, um, what would you say is a, a, a good way to approach evangelism in the sense that we're trying to bring absolute truth to a culture that decides what, they, what their truth is for themselves? Yeah, ask Nancy Piercy <laughs> and Carl Truman. I just thought the same thing. You know, there's a philosophical answer to that. There's an apologetics answer to that. You know, where you talk about our culture's not actually moving away from absolute truth. It's changing absolute truth. So, um, you know, there is more legalism. Um, if you don't know about this, you... You need to know the best thing to hit the internet, in my opinion, in years is this new podcast, The Witch Trials of J.K. Rowling. If you've not listened to it, six episodes long, it's not Christian, it's utterly fantastic. Jonathan Haidt, social psychologist I love, called it the most helpful thing on the American culture wars in years. And she is a, the journalist who kind of oversees the podcast, grew up in Westboro Baptist, 
Um, so she would, you know, picket military funerals and walk around with signs saying "Turn or burn" and "God hates fags" and things like that. She's since lost her faith, but very lovely, thoughtful, calm, rational person. And so she just talks about when Harry Potter first came out in the 90s or whatever it was, it was all hardcore right-wing Christians that were calling for book bans and burning her books and you know, picketing her stuff. And now, if you're familiar with the controversy around her, it's far left, Twitter, TikTok, millennial progressive kind of people that are literally burning her books and putting it on TikTok, calling for book bans, trying to legislate, you know, her books not being allowed in libraries. It was like hardcore fundamentalist Christians, and now it's super far left secular people. And you just realize that the Pharisees of our day are not evangelical Christians, they're mostly white progressives. That's, those are the Pharisees of our day, the legalistic, angry, mean, like I remember, just old enough to remember a couple, I grew up mostly in good churches, but I remember there were some like, cantankerous, arrogant, dog-minded, mean-spirited, legalistic, old-school, quote, Christians. I don't know anybody like that in our churches. Um, again, at least they tithed and would volunteer. I'll take a couple of them. Um, but I know a lot of 22-year-olds who are exactly like that, and they're super liberal and super secular, and the same spirit, mean, un, frankly, unintelligent a lot of the time, not thoughtful, not nuanced, no room for debate, no room for doubt. You're not allowed to ask any questions. If you do, you're bad, you're shunned, excommunicate people that disagree with them, angry, fear-mongering, arrogant, closed-minded. It's just switched. So anyway, can't recommend that podcast enough. It's, fan, it's like crack cocaine for your ears. It's amazing. Um, not that I know what crack cocaine's like, but... <laughs> I hear it's quite addictive. Um, so there's an apologetics answer there. You know, when people talk about how they, that, you know, they want it to be more inclusive as a society, they don't actually mean that. They mean they just want to change the morality of what's good and evil around sex or all sorts of different things. People make crazy dogmatic claims right now about everything from transgenderism to racial justice, which again, one I'm for, the other I'm not, in the same way at a philosophical level. And um, so absolute truth actually hasn't disappeared. For the claim that there is no absolute truth, of course, is an absolute truth claim. So it's an apologetics answer. But probably the right tack is a relational answer. It's, it's hospitality. It's, hey, why don't you come over and let me make you dinner? And maybe you're not into cooking, but you can learn to make quesadillas. Anybody can make a good quesadilla. And, uh, or maybe you can kind of level up to a burrito and like, who doesn't love a burrito with some chips and salsa? I mean, you can do that, you know? And maybe you're like a master chef, I have no idea. Um, but you can invite people to your table. You can ask questions. You can be humble when you don't know the answer and you don't understand why the Christian way is better than what they espouse or think. And you can hold that with humility and then you can go think about it and research and read and talk to your pastor or whatever. Um, you can listen, you can create, I mean, this is so ironic because there's such a cultural generational change. I think the church could become, one of the, one of the roles of the church in, in public discourse in the coming decades could be, we could be one of the only places left where people who disagree can come together and talk openly and be kind and ask honest questions. Twitter is definitely not that place. And so we could be the kind of place where you could host a conversation 
with conservatives, liberals, and atheists, and Christians, and Buddhists, and you could create a space where people can talk honestly and be cordial and kind and learn how to disagree and debate and think. And like, we could be one of the only places in society where you can still do that. You know, the, the university, it used to be the university was the primary way you do it. I mean, like, all the stuff on American academics is terrifying. Yeah. It is the, uh, the capacity for open debate is disappearing from American classrooms. You have professors cowering in fear because if they do not fit the exact progressive like ideological line, they know they will get mobbed and they'll lose their job. And so they can no longer, professor's job used to be to get everybody to disagree with each other, to think through what they believe. You can't do that. The coddling of the American the mind. Of the mind. Yeah, Some of the most yeah. elite universities in America are not allowing their professors to create room for a debate. So we can do that. You know, the church can become a place like that, the Christian, whether it's the church or your table and your small group or community can become a place where people can come and listen. So I think there's a, there's a philosophical answer. Read Carl Truman or Nancy Piercy and people way smarter than me. There's an apologetics answer of like, how do you rebut, you know, is where Tim, some of Tim Keller's stuff is so helpful. You know what I mean? Like you just, how do you deal with people that don't believe in absolute truth? You just say, do you believe in ra that racism is wrong? Yes, racism is absolutely wrong. Why? And then they'll look like, uh, well, because, that, uh, because all you know, people are created equal. Why? That, uh, and you chase it down and you quickly realize that racism is the natural outworking of evolutionary theory. You know, Carl Truman basically says that the Nazis built their entire ideology on Nietzsche, who was the first philosopher to think about the implications of evolution. If we're just animals, if we're not designed, if it's random chance, and Darwin probably was still a, a theist and became be, be a Christian at the end of his life, but um, if we're just animals, there's no time and you know, morality, good and evil, it's all just made up as a social construct to hold us together or whatever, then the natural outworking is the strong survive and the strong weed out the weak. And the, like, that's where they literally built Aryan supremacy from. So um, you're definitely not getting to racial justice from from secularism, you're getting there from Genesis chapter one and the whole writings of the New Testament. So um, there's an apologetics answer, but probably it's mostly a relational answer. It's, hey, let's have burritos. Let me ask you questions. Here's what I'm learning. Here's what I don't know. I love you, man. I'll be praying for you. So I think that that's disappearing from the world and, and anybody can do any, hospitality is so awesome. Another book recommendation, uh, The Gospel Comes with the House Key by Rosario Butterfield. Beautiful book. The nice thing about hospitality is you already eat a couple of times a day, so you're not adding another thing into your life, and you're just repurposing it. And you know what? You might not be able to hold an apologetics debate with a secular postmodern theorist, but you probably can make quesadillas and set a table and open some LaCroix and put on some music and have people over. Anybody can do this. And um, I think hospitality is the way that Jesus primarily engaged with people that were hostile toward him and were far from God. And I still think the Jesus way is the best way. That is a really great way to end. <laughs> John Mark, thank you so much. Yeah, Thanks, thank guys. you so much. Uh, and thank you guys so much for coming out. Like I said, it was a little bit last minute. Um, but yeah, thank you for, for being here and, uh, and John, yeah, John Mark, thanks for, for making the time. So, oh, I can't believe yeah. you came out. So yeah. happy to be here and yeah. I love the desert. It's beautiful. And I, it's just an honor to be at this church. Thank yeah. you. All right. Well, thank you guys. Have a great evening. Yep.